1: Hello, uh,
0: once again, we are doing another Rohalastapa, this one comes from the Oxford Playhouse. My guest is George Monbiot, the environmental campaigner and journalist, extremely intelligent man with dire warnings for your future. But some um, tips on how to avoid uh, calamity, hopefully as well. Uh, it was a very interesting podcast, I hope you will enjoy it. Um, Come and see one of these if you like. Um, the uh, London gigs are starting up in March, on Mondays in March, April the 6th as well. Um, there may be a special gig on March 24th at the O2. <sighs> Little room. Uh, and uh, there's Birmingham and Norwich also coming up. Sorry if the light uh, ch- uh, changed there on the video. I can't, I can't do anything about that. Um, Go to slash gigs can find out where we'll be adding some more dates later in the year as well. Um, lots of cool stuff coming up. Relativity in, in July on Radio 4, and back on uh, Point of Celebrities at some point. There's some other things that uh, we'll talk about when I'm allowed to tell you about them. And we are aiming to do a podcast sitcom as well this year, which I have to get on with writing, but it is very exciting which hopefully we can fund with the adverts that you've been listening to on your Acast feed and so on. Uh, so that was worth doing in the end wasn't it if you get a whole new series of extra stuff. That's the way I look at it. Uh, and remember, if you become a monthly badger, you can hear these podcasts without any adverts in them. Go to com slash badges. You get all kinds of other benefits as well. Come on, I've been talking for one minute. 46, 47, 48, 49 seconds, 50 seconds. It just goes on. The more I count, the longer it is. Let's see if we can get this going before we hit two minutes. Let's sit back, relax and enjoy. her last rah, ah. Two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Oxford Playhouse. Please welcome a man who appeared on this stage in 1989, paying Paul In a month in the country, people are still talking about it to this day. I'm a person, it still counts. (laughs) It's Richard Herring. (laughs) Thank you very much. Borshinsov. Remember me. You may remember me of my appearance as Borshinsov, Oxford in a month in the country. Uh, The weather today is, how should I say, very pleasurable. Um, that's what I like. My, that was my catchphrase. <laughs> Dave Allen came to see the show. Not because I was in it. I must have been friends with someone else. And he passed me on the stairs back there. I've just suddenly remembered. And he said, here come the heavies. That's what he said. There that beautiful. Anyway, welcome. It's lovely to be back in Oxford. Uh, welcome to Richard Herring's Lost Swathes of Time podcast. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Got to come keep it fresh. We podcast come up with a new idea. Uh, this one, I reflect on the 30 years it's been since I've been at university, since I left university and feel tragically sad. Uh, literally, it's going to be just an hour of me just crying. I was sitting in pret which I thought were, used to be wimpy, but it wasn't. It used to be Laura Ashley, so it's OK. But, uh, and just, there was a couple of really nerdy first-year students in there who looked about 12. <laughs> Talking about orienteering. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I thought, that's why I didn't have sex until I was 20. <laughs> <laughs> but I was hanging out with uh, the Bullingdon Club. Uh, <laughs> there were three future PMs smashing up restaurants and being rude to and afraid of women. Uh, and one of the homeless people, we burned £50 notes in front of, said he calls it Rahulastapa. it is. And uh, he was disappointed with me for b- b- behaving in this way. Uh, lucky you didn't see me fucking that pig's head, wouldn't it? So um, I actually did genuinely invite David Cameron on as a guest for tonight's show, but they declined for some reason. <laughs> can't imagine. Can't imagine why uh, that would be. So uh, it is lovely to be here uh, back in Oxford, back on the Playhouse. I've been here a few times, but since uh, I did form here as a student, right next door to the Burton Taylor Rooms, where I remember. Back in about 1987, I did an amazing fart just in the foyer, in the staircase. <laughs> that was so bad, I had to run into the toilets and hide. Seriously, it just waft. Everyone was queuing to go in, and it just—it was. A, I was eating a lot of beans at the time. I was vegetarian. Don't let anyone tell you that helps the environment. It does. That's worse. It's worse. Uh, apologies for not blowing up the Oxford Union in the 1980s when I had a chance. That's that's. Uh, it's been lovely to be back here. Um, uh, I was... Uh, well, I, passed, but I could, could see Boswell's is still here. And that was slightly smaller than it used to be. Waterstones has taken over the bit where I lifted creature comforts from... there. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, we used to, Stuart Lee used to do a joke because there can't be a god because if there was one, you'd be able to buy him in Boswell's. So that was... <laughs> was... Can't do that anywhere else but here. I don't think you'll mind me doing that. Uh, yeah, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, I'm doing uh, uh, I just remembering the Carfax Chippy that I used to spend a lot. is that still there? Yep. Everything's changed. That's good to see that. I spent most nights going out trying to find some girls to talk to with my friend Mike Cosgrave, but we just ended up playing the fruit machine uh, in the Carfax Chippy, <laughs> eating chips. It's amazing times. Uh, I, did, I did lose my virginity in Oxford, so thank you for that. Oxford spent. Took a little while. I wasn't quite 20. I was, I no, I was nearly 20. And looking at those boys now, I'm thinking, the girl who had sex with me was a paedophile. That is disgusting. <laughs> I, she used me. It was a, I had sex once for about 50 seconds. I didn't come, mate, don't that? No, it wasn't because I just stopped because I was scared. Uh, and then I uh, didn't have sex again for another year. So, you know, you know one. Can accuse me of not being a stud. Uh, do I have anything to tell you about Oxford? Maybe, maybe next week I'll tell you more. <laughs> if you come back, if you can come back next week, it's very different, very different time. Right, look, let's crack on because we've uh, got a fantastic show for you tonight. Uh, please welcome my guest this week, is probably best known for um, for his failure to save a woodpecker when he was eight years old. <laughs> Will you please welcome George Monbiot, ladies and gentlemen? Come in, in. Come Give Come microphone. Here we go. Right. Thank you very much.
2: Well, if I'd known I was second choice to David Cameron... <laughs> maybe you were, you, you, were,
0: you were in first. So it's Paul Sinner who yeah. isn't here, who was... Uh, second Does he know? David Cameron. Did he tell him? No, he doesn't know, but I'll, I'll oh, definitely man. rub it in, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I didn't think I'd get David Cameron, so... <laughs> as In Liverpool, I tried to get Paul McCartney, so I don't, you know... <laughs> And did I get... No, I didn't get <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think he lives there anymore. Um, but you do live here still, in Oxford? Yeah, again. Yes, you yeah, come back. Yeah, you come back. Yes.
2: God knows why. Because <laughs> <laughs> you
0: didn't enjoy... You were a student here, but yeah. you didn't particularly enjoy being a student here, from what I've read.
2: No, it was... I, I just sort of started on the wrong foot. You know, I thought I had to behave as stupidly as everybody else around me, and it just didn't work, and I... I just kept falling flat on my face, mostly in a drunken stupor, and yes. I eventually decided that this was just shit. It just <laughs> didn't work for me at all. And right. so I then became a recluse throughout my whole second year, which is you know, not great for all the networking you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and then, and, and I just decided I, the only thing I wanted to do was to plan what I was going to do after, because right. I just hated it from that
0: point. It is difficult, but I didn't enjoy it at all, mm. either. And I think it's... Because it's so overwhelming... Um, once I once I sort of got into just doing comedy and acting, I enjoyed that part of it. But the rest of it, I found you know I was literally just mm. walking the streets eating chips,
1: mm.
2: yeah. Well, like, to that's what, women. it it's almost like you're sort of overwhelmed with. I, I mean, for a start, you, you you're supposed to be drawing attention to yourself. That that you know. So sort of later on, I realised that's what Oxford is supposed to be all about. You know, being a student here, it's supposed to be drawing attention to yourself, and if you're really crap at it. Uh, and you do it in all the wrong ways, and all you do obviously is make a massive plonker of yourself <laughs> um, in front of all these people who are later going to become really influential. Yes. And and so you then think, oh god, what have I done? You know. And then then you hide yourself under a rock for the rest of the time.
0: You didn't put your cock in a pig's mouth, though, did you? No. I mean, I hope.
2: No. Well, there was someone standing there already. <laughs> <laughs> There's another that could have come in the back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Still leads to the same place. Tell us about this. So your activism started as an eight-year-old trying to save a tree being cut yeah, down. Yeah,
2: so so I I was brought up not all that far from here. I don't know why I never managed to get away. Um, and um, there was this common close to where I lived with this beautiful old hollow tree, cherry tree on it, which had a green woodpecker's nest in. And I was wandering about, as, as I usually did when I was eight, um, on the common, and this guy turned up with a chainsaw to cut the tree down because he had firewood rights and he could cut down any dead tree, which actually is the last trees you should ever cut down because there's more life in a dead tree than in a living tree. And, and so he turned up with obvious intent and I just clung onto the tree. I was like the, the earliest tree hugger in, 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 in history. And, and, I, and, and I refused to let him cut it down. Unfortunately, I was a very obedient boy, and the, the one condition of being allowed to wander freely over this common all day long was that I came home for lunch. <laughs> and I learned a really important lesson <laughs> that day.
0: Yes, they don't, you, you can make them promise, but they won't. You, you'd have to get more than promises out of people. Yeah, well, Please and... don't cut down through Yeah, I'll promise. I yeah, think.
2: yeah. <laughs> well, and there has to be more than one of you. That it was another yes. quite important lesson, especially yes. when you're eight
0: and don't have lunch.
2: Don't have lunch. No. So Never sl- have lunch. That's
0: sl- well, I'm glad you're here because there was a uh, there was a possibility that you would not make it because you were trying to get arrested this month, and mm. I worried that that might lead to you being in prison.
2: Mm. Well, well, I, I wasn't. Uh, that was the the intention. Yes. Yeah, so it would have been a failure if, if I hadn't ended up at yeah. least in a police cell. I would have been in my diary for six weeks um, that, that on that day I was going to get arrested because, you know, when you've got a busy life, you have to plan these things. <laughs> um, and and the weird thing was, so I got arrested under, under two... Things. They haven't turned into charges yet because there were so many of us getting arrested. This was with Extinction Rebellion that they... Had to kick us out of the police stations before they charged us, so I've been released under investigation. But one of the things I was picked up for was breaching this Section 14 order, which the police had imposed this blanket ban on all protests across London. Now it happened that I was already one of the um, claimants in this judicial review against that Section, section 14 order, which is this—it's just a sort of direct infringement on our human right to protest—and and. Um, and and a couple of days after my arrest, the lawyer who was in charge of this judicial review rang up and said, um, so, right, we had to go through your standing in this case. And, and he said, right, so, you, you know, you've been an activist and all this for a long time, great. And, and, and what else? I said, well, I did get arrested under Section 14 a couple of days ago. Great! That <laughs> enhances your status before the court. I thought, maybe I should pull off a bank robbery or something. Yeah, I'll be right at the heart of the establishment.
0: The, the courts love murderers who've done it before. go, oh, no, he's done loads yeah. of these. He's yeah. brilliant. You <laughs> have to give him some respect when he turns yeah. up. <laughs> um, so, so you got, you'll we'll hear later. You'll get you'll get called in later to be taken to court. Well,
2: uh, I, I'm i guess so. I mean, we'll they're, they're, I mean, part of part of what we were trying to do was just to overwhelm the system. and Yeah. Um, yeah mission accomplished. You know, they,
0: and what's the thinking um, behind that? Why Why do you think that will help?
2: Well, so. The people who organised Extinction Rebellion had done this massive research into successful rebellions, civil disobedience in the past. And they found out that non-violent protest is much more effective than violent protest. You know, they, they really did this thoroughly and empirically. Um, that massive social transformation, like civil rights, decolonization, votes for women, democracy movements in East Germany and Poland and the rest of it, succeeds when large numbers of people show that they're prepared to lose their liberty over what they're trying to achieve, because then other people take them more seriously. Right. And so the idea was to get as many people arrested as possible in the hope that other people would take us more seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and I think some people did. The police did. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, no, I mean, it did work. I mean, it has been successful in that it pushed the issue right to, to the front of people 's minds, where it ought to be, as opposed to in that annex down behind the back of the building, where we can safely forget humankind 's greatest existential crisis that we 've ever faced, which is how the media and politics have been treating it up till now yeah um, and so so, so it, it succeeded thus far, but you know declaring climate emergencies and all the other things they 've said doesn 't actually get us to where we need to be, which is um preventing this the gathering collapse of our life support systems
0: yeah gone quite heavy quite soon <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Will we get you, to the end of the you, interview, okay? Or you is you invite me onto to a, a comedy show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: it's okay. We're allowed to. We're allowed You've to only series. got yourself to blame.
0: <laughs> it's all right, because the more you build up seriousness, the more I can undercut it with jokes. So no, I'm, very, yeah. I'm very happy. Is this, this is my perfect... Uh, is, is this where the ritual humiliation begins? Yes, <laughs> it is. Well, I'm not... No, well, do you think... How do you think it's working? Because it's sort of... Obviously, the media... With the latest, uh, back in, we're, we're talking back in October uh, 2019, for those of you at home. Uh, with the latest load of protests, the, the, the thing that sort of captured the media's attention and maybe Twitter's attention was the guys climbing up on the tube and disrupting regular people's days commute into work and then being dragged off the tube and kicked and everyone found that quite amusing, it seemed. Yeah, it was. So, which also seems to go against your point of, peaceful protest
2: it wasn't xr's greatest hit no i think from from the distance of the future in which this podcast will be heard yeah looking <laughs> back on october 2019 it will have receded somewhat into the background sure. and people will be talking about more significant things but but i mean what what happened was that a few guys went off on one basically we, because pretty well the whole of extinction rebellion has said we do not want to do this this is a really daft thing to do yeah apart from anything else Electric mass transit—that's yeah. what—that's what we want. <laughs> yes, and so you're going to go and stop it? <laughs> Why? Yeah. You know, it's just—it just none of it made any sense. And then, and of course, it, well, well. So, so, <laughs> I—I'd been—I'd been, I've been um, taken to Lewisham, Lewisham Nick, because that was the, the the closest place they could find a police cell to put me in, because so many of us were being arrested. Some people were being taken. I was arrested in Whitehall. Right. I was taken to Lewisham. Some people were taken to Brighton. The following morning, <laughs> following morning, I, I had to take the Eurostar to Brussels to, to give a lecture to the European Commission. I mean, this is a sort of surreality of my life from a police cell in Lewisham to, to talking talking in the, this vast European Commission monolith. And I very nearly missed the Eurostar because some assholes had blocked. Them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> but do you, I mean, I, I, obviously, all protest movements have have gone through these various things, and obviously, they annoyed people. The suffragettes annoyed quite a lot of people. Why did they have to ruin that horse race? Uh, <laughs> but um, but you know, it it is it it obviously is such a crucial issue. Why do you think people are not? I mean, do you think do you think people are engaging with it more? But why have they not engaged with it mm. faster than this?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, it is the big question, really, because you know, I've been banging on... I mean, it's been 34 years now. I've been banging on about almost nothing else. And I've beaten my head against that wall so hard that the bricks have come out. Head's fine. It's, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's been so frustrating this whole time. Um, uh, saying, look, look, this is this is it. This is life or death. This is everything. This is the biggest thing humankind has ever faced because it is our life support systems it is the only habitable planet we know and we're making it uninhabitable and and you know i've argued it every which way and no i'm not the only one there's thousands of us have been doing this and we just haven't been getting any headway at all because it just contradicts everything what it says is that everything we regard as progress is progress towards the cliff you know we think oh economic growth great you know we've got to have more economic growth every government on earth is trying to stimulate economic growth but given that we've never managed to decouple material, the use of materials from economic growth, what that means is growth towards disaster. It's the growth of the cancer cell. It's just, it, and, and so you have, to, you have to say, right, well, we're going to challenge economic growth. Oh, shit, if we challenge that, we had to challenge capitalism because you can't have capitalism without economic growth. Growth is a compound of, of profit that, 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 that people are pursuing. And so then you say, "All oh, right, so we have to challenge the whole political and economic structure, which is built around capitalism. And you end up challenging everything. And by and large, people aren't prepared to do that. <laughs> Certainly not in the billionaire press. No. Um, and so, so you end up with, you know, just, you know, the ask gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But it has to be. It yeah. has to be bigger. I mean, basically, capitalism is not compatible with the survival of humanity. And I come to that reluctantly. You know, I didn't start off as an anti-capitalist, but I became one when I saw that it doesn't work mathematically. Yeah. And, and so you know, you, you, you're swimming against the flow of consumerism, which is our dominant ideology. No one even recognises it as an ideology because it's a plastic soup in which we swim. Um, you're swimming against the flow of the entire structure of power And most importantly, I think, you're swimming against the media. You know, to own a newspaper, you have to be a billionaire. Do billionaires want to see the end of capitalism? Do they want to see their activities restrained? Do they want to be told they can't do certain things because it's going to cause everybody else to die? No, because they're going to be the ones in the security condominium (laughs) on, on that island in the middle of the Pacific going, ha, 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 while everybody else goes under the waves. But
0: cap- if the world ends, capitalism will end anyway. It's, it's sort of, it's it's, part, it's on the world, right? <laughs> we'll have capitalism in space. Well, but well, I mean, we no, need, no, need no, people... No, check
2: ca- this. I mean, so there's a whole field of, of, like, environmental economics, which is completely insane, which basically says, uh, it's all fine, we can keep growing and growing and growing and causing more and more climate breakdown and environmental breakdown because economic growth will more than compensate for it. And, and the guy who basically kicked all this off, William Nordhaus, he got the Nobel Prize in economics last year. And some of us have been looking at what happens at certain amounts of temperature rise. So like by six degrees, he reckons there'll be six degrees of global heating, um, we will have Uh, something like 2 to 5% less economic activity than there would otherwise have been, which is still more than the big... Six degrees is pretty well the end of human life on Earth. (laughs) You have to get to 19 degrees until they accept there'd be a halving of economic activity. (laughs) Now, 19 degrees is probably enough to trigger the runaway um, global warming feedback which ends up with an atmosphere like Venus, (laughs) where there is... Not even bacteria can live in Venus. But it's fine, because we still have half the economic activity (laughs) that we have today.
0: But it just... You know, that's what... I guess is hard to understand why the people in charge, even if they want the money now, that they're not thinking ahead... I mean, the evidence seems... I know Donald Trump sort of... It seems to be sending everything backwards, but the evidence seems to be pretty clear, or pretty much all the scientists agree with what you're saying about about what will happen with global warming at least
2: so so yeah so the choice they're faced with is power and wealth and dominance now or versus complete collapse when after they've died versus stepping back and letting some other people have a go and distributing the wealth a bit more and the power a bit more with the continuation of life on earth how is that in any way a choice for them yeah (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, they just don't think like that. They no. really don't. You know, those, those who exercise power today exercise power because that's what they want to do. And those who accumulate vast amounts of wealth to do, today, that's what they want to do. Yeah, That's what they're in it for. They're not in it for anybody else. They couldn't give a stuff about anybody else. That's a terrifying realisation. You know, when you're in my business, yeah. that's a terrifying realisation that you come to that they could not give a flying shit what happens to you, to me, or to anyone in this audience.
0: Yeah. But they're still on the planet. That's the problem. They're still there. Do you think people just... I mean, because, you know, uh, me as a human being... um, I mean, I used to do a routine about leaving my TV on standby and... Uh, you know, and the difficulty of getting up and out of your seat and walking and pressing a button like in Victorian times and having to walk <laughs> back to your seat. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and uh, you it's, know, in 50 years. It's like years...
2: kids being sent down the mine. <laughs> <isn't>
0: it? <laughs> it is, it's terrible. But, you know, I still, do, I still don't do that. You know, I know it's, that's not the big thing, but the, but 50, 60 million people, 4 billion people doing that obviously makes a difference. And, you know, in 50 years' time, everyone's living underwater going. You know, you, 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 if you would just turned the TVs off, that would have made a difference. You must have known what would happen. Yeah, we did know, but yeah, it was really hard yeah, to we get did. Off we, the sofa. we You have to imagine it from our <laughs> point of view. It's the walking. <laughs> so you know, I know. You know, I'm still concerned about it. But uh, you know, we're not making. I don't, we're, people aren't making changes. Just the public aren't changing. We're still flying everywhere. And is that the main? Is flying the main problem? Is that
2: is... well, flying? Flying's the biggest thing you can individually do. Yeah. In if you really want to cook the planet, that is the biggest thing you can do. But but the the basic problem is that you know, consumerism is a problem. We can't consume our way out of this. I mean, no. there's no such thing as green consumerism. There's just less consumerism. And all the emphasis has been on oh you've got to change your cotton buds change your cotton buds and you, you'll save the world you will know, have those ones with the paper sticks you know yeah and that is that's that's it that's you've sorted it all out <laughs> you know, don't buy so many plastic bags you've changed no we need systemic change yeah. structural change and and it's not something that anyone can do individually you know even you know that you can make some differences like flying a lot less plant based diet cycling not not driving a car everywhere, whatever it might be, you can, you can do that. But unless everybody's doing that, you're just creating more space for other people to occupy. Yeah. You know, if, if, if I'm riding my bike, instead of driving the car I would otherwise be driving, some other, other fucker is going to be driving this massive 4x4 <laughs> in that space which I would have occupied. Yeah. And so, so you can't create that structural change alone. You've, you've got to do it through protest movements through political change yeah. because it, otherwise it can't happen that's why i got arrested for extinction rebellion yeah okay
0: do you think people just believe i mean i just i mean the politicians and the public just have this feeling i mean is it maybe it comes from religion or just from they people just think with all these things that are going oh it'll be all right everything will be you know someone'll work out my sort of theory is someone'll work out a way to you know make make more oxygen or whatever less carbon dioxide whatever it is uh, <laughs> some scientists will make a, th- a, a thing that does that. So, do you think people just have this sort of belief that someone will step in and, you know, some a God will stop in and, and stop it? Or
2: well, it's the way all the it. movies end, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and there is this. There is this. I mean, it's a religious belief. Yeah. That it'll be all right in the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, people like you, have, it'll be all right on the night. Yeah. <laughs> and then look what happens. But, 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 we, but, but there, is, there is that sort of. You know we're almost hardwired that yeah. some there's going to be some higher authority. It's God or the government or something is going yeah. to sort it out and it's I, going to be okay. But it's not. No, you
0: know, I don't know if we can trust God because he's tr- tried to destroy us loads of times, isn't he? Yeah. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah for a start. No, they I were know. only wanking and bumming. It's not that bad. Is it? <laughs> not that bad. And Noah's ark, he took out he took us all out for that.
2: <laughs> Awful. Not even clear. It's not even clear what we actually did. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Very, he's a
0: very confused person, God. That's my problem. I think he's enjoying us all heating up. He likes it.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit, we'll come back to it, I'm sure, uh, and there's loads of more to talk to you about. Let's talk a little bit about you, because I'm sort of fascinated by your, uh, well, your, your, your whole kind of journey to this point. I mean, obviously, you started very uh, tuned in as a kid, and, um... Uh, but you, you sort of went into investigative journalism quite quickly. So you came, came out of college and went into the natural history unit at, in Bristol, is that right, as a producer?
2: So, so I basically just spent the last year and a half at university just hammering on their doors saying, look, I want to make investigative environmental programmes. You're not making them. Nobody, nobody in the world is making them at the moment. And yet it's so obvious that they need to be made. And eventually I got a call to say you're so fucking persistent, it is easier <laughs> to give you the job than not to. That, that's the exact words that yeah. the, the head of the Natural History Unit used. And so, and, and, and it worked really well. I mean, it, you know, we did, I did it for about two and a half years. We cracked some massive stories. You know, we won awards. We got nas- international coverage and some of the stories and stuff. It was fantastic. You know, and I thought, right, this is me. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Then... 1987 thatcher launched her coup against the bbc because it had um it done these incredible exposés there was one called maggie's militant tendency showing that about half the cabinet were fascists when they were at university right they're literally or members of fascist organizations there was another one called secret society showing all this uh, unauthorized spending the government had been doing without parliamentary approval and all these spy satellites and stuff like this and um and she just said, right, we're going to wipe out the BBC, which they more or less did. They forced the Director-General, Alistair Milne, to resign, um, cleared out the board. And the, the day after his resignation, my, my boss came in and said, that's it, we've had it from the top, no more investigative programmes. Right. I said, what, you mean the whole BBC? He said, yep, that's it. And, and that's the point I just had to leave. You know, There wasn't yeah. any future in that for me. And, and it was, it's never recovered. You know, the BBC, it was, it's hard to believe now that it was a really full-on, exciting place to work where you were just going to get them, you know, and, 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 and we, got, we exposed some really dirty stuff. And, and now, you know, you, you, you know, it won't even say uh, we're not having that Farage bastard on our programmes, you know. It's like, because we've got to get balance. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to have some far-right lunatic on in order to balance people who aren't far-right lunatics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we've got to have them on 33 times on question time. <laughs>
0: yeah. you
2: know, that's what it's become. It's, it's this overcompensation. Yeah. Where, it's where a, it's, it's
0: a, a misunderstanding of balance as well, because balance isn't just taking two people from the extremes. And you know, if, if there's lots of people in the middle, then balance is taking people from the middle and occasionally going down to the, to the extremes. But you know, that, it is, it's obviously that. I think Farage being on TV so much has clearly been an influence hasn't it on what's what he's managed to well done to him he's done very well uh
2: from his perspective <laughs> well i, I mean you, you know i remember when trump was elected and people said oh it's the first reality tv president and i think no I, they're all reality tv stars except in this country the reality tv is question time yeah. and it's and it's news night and it's the, uh, and, and, and it's you know news at 10 because they, the noisier you are which basically means the crazier you are the more airtime you're going to get because yeah. the whole competition is for noise. So, you know, you get someone making a complete tit of themselves, like Marc Francois tearing up that letter. Do you remember saying, oh, my father was, he didn't fight in two world wars, I admit. But, you know, it <laughs> yeah. goes on and tears up this letter because there's some German bloke involved. And, 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 and you think, God, what a total idiot. <laughs> Whereupon, the very next day, his phone is ringing off the hook. Yeah. With the bookers for various programs, and he's never been off the air since then. That's what they want. They want people who are going to create noise. They want people where everybody's going to say, I can't believe that tit is on the TV again. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Everyone's yeah. talking about it.
0: So maybe Extinction Rebellion should be more titish. <laughs> I mean, they've been quite titish at times, but. <laughs> Maybe that's the way through, and so you went. Well, I'm really, I'm interested in like if you look at your Wikipedia page, and I've tried. I've, I've, you can find other stuff, but it just sort of skirts through the various adventures you had as you went to, into investigative journalism, sort of outside of the BBC. I guess uh, you went to, You were sentenced to life in prison in absentia in Indonesia.
2: What did yeah, you, what I did was you quite do? glad. Quite glad to be out the country yeah. at that
0: point. <laughs> what had um, you done to
2: upset so, Indonesia? So this, it, it was quite easy to upset Indonesia at the yeah. time because, um, so, so I'd, I'd left the BBC, yeah. um, and but I was on to this massive story which no one else was covering, which was basically this um, transmigration of hundreds of thousands of people um, being uh, sort of sometimes voluntarily, sometimes being coerced into migrating away from Java and Bali, the inner islands of Indonesia, out to these wild parts, the far-flung parts of the archipelago. And the ostensible reason was to relieve population pressure. But the real reason was to basically securitize the whole of Indonesia and turn it into one place with one culture, one language. And this was like about the most diverse, well, it was the most diverse place on earth. Mm. Still is to some extent. And, uh, you know, with an incredible number of peoples, astonishing number of languages. I mean, literally a couple of thousand languages and all these amazing different ecosystems. And they just wanted to trash the whole archipelago and turn it into sort of one sort of city-state, effectively controlled by Suharto, this ruthless dictator. And, uh, and it was being funded by the World Bank and by the UK government and by the US government, of course, because all they could see this uh, as as being was just an asset in the cold war mm. he, he he he's our asset so we're going to fund whatever he wants and the real epicenter of this was this illegally occupied territory west papua which is the western half of of, of new guinea and it's like it's the same status as as um the uh, occupied territories in the middle east or, uh, or or tibet for example uh and yet nobody talks about it it's right. just sort of completely off the, the, the political radar, and and there is and was a genocide going on there. Basically, you know, the the, the governor of West Papua at the time that we we, we were me and the photographer, um, I I um, fooled into going with me. Um, the time we went out there, the governor had said we're trying to create a beautiful new race of people with pale skin and straight hair, because the West Papuans had had cur- curly hair and dark skin, and and it was like. You know, this is genocide. It was yeah. Straightforward genocide was taking place, and so um, we uh, would we wanted to get to West Papua, and we weren't allowed to. Um, and I, we we spent a couple of weeks in Jakarta, desperately trying to get a permit to go there, pretending to be missionaries, bird watchers. It changed every day. It didn't probably didn't help that it changed every day. <laughs> um and then one day I was walking down this corridor in the, the police headquarters in, 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 in Jakarta after another incredibly frustrating day, just queuing and getting nowhere. I went down to see if I could find a glass of water and halfway down the corridor was this door, which was ajar, and it said head of immigration police on the door. I said, I'm gonna go in and use everything I learned at Oxford to persuade this young man that I am entitled to go to West Papua. So I knocked on the door, no answer. I pushed the door open, and there was no-one there. But on the desk was a pad of headed notepaper and a stamp. So I thought, who needs the head of immigration, please? So we wrote ourselves this permit, and on the back of it, spent six months... Uncovering this unbloody believable stuff going on in West Papua, I and mean, it was—we uh, yeah, very nearly got killed several times. It was insane, but we came back with this very, very powerful story. And for some reason, the Suharto government objected to the means by which we had found our way to West Papua. <laughs>
0: yeah, and so in, in life, in prison. If you go back there, will you get be sent to prison, or are you all right now?
2: I've chosen not to test the <laughs> okay. proposition.
0: It's a shame in Indonesia. It's nice, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's nice to go on holiday. You're not going to be able to do that. But on that, and you, know, you give me a new emergency question that might not work for anyone else, but I think this was on the Indonesian. Have you ever been stung into a poisonous coma by hornets? It's amazing you should yeah, ask that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. So I'm going to so... ask everyone that from now on. Because <laughs> this is going to be a great start to this question.
2: <laughs> So, so there was one day when when we'd been trying to connect with this rebel movement, um, um, the, the the Free West Papua movement, which was literally armed with bows and arrows against helicopter gunships. You know, it was you talk about inequality of arms. It was insane. But anyway, and we'd been waiting and waiting. They were meant to send someone to meet us, and then we'd go out in a boat and we'd go to the headquarters, and it was all very exciting. But it just wasn't happening. And so every day I tried to do something. To get to just get my mind off the boredom of sitting in this fly-blown little town in the north of West Papua, trying to connect with these people, and 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 I uh, one day I took this minibus to the end of the road, and I say the road, it was the road. There was only <laughs> one road, and it ended about five five miles away from this town, and and so I got to the end of the road, and I went for a walk through the forest, and and it was a hot day, and I took my shirt off, and I was walking, and I was sweating a bit. I bumped into. There'd been some burning in the forest. Someone had done a bit of swidden agriculture, so slash and burn. I bumped into this tree stump, walked on a couple of paces, and suddenly I was covered in hornets. And and these aren't your your pathetic little hornets that we get in in Britain. These were these jungle black jungle hornets, which you know uh, we'd read in our in our SAS survival handbook, which turned out to be not an entirely reliable guide to. Um, um, to, to, to surviving in West Brap, where um, three of, th- stings from three of these could, could kill you, right? And I was completely covered in them, And they were all over my bare skin. They were tangled up in my hair, buzzing away. And, and I knew you've just got to stay completely still, pretend to be a tree, and eventually they'll lose interest and fly away. But there was just one coming up my... I was wearing shorts. And it was just coming up my inside leg. And I... I so, and for about ten seconds, I held. on. I was like, no, 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 no! <laughs> I will not be. I will not be <laughs> d- disconcerted by a hornet going up my inside leg. And then suddenly, I just couldn't hack it. And I started thrashing at them with my shirt and running and shouting and trying to get them off. And I got stung all over. Well, right. I could count eight. You know, and each one was like a hammer. It's like poof, this real massive blow. It's a, because they just packed this huge like poison punch and and so i went running through this forest shouting no ah, i'm gonna die i'm gonna die and i come to this house on stilts um because there they they built houses about 10 12 foot off the ground to get out out of the way of the mosquitoes and um and it was obviously the house of the farmer whose whose cultivation had, you know I'd, I'd, I'd been crossing and 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 i stood at the bottom of this ladder and shouted, help 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 I'm, I'm, I'm i've been attacked by insects i didn't know, know the, the, the name for hornets i've been a uh, word for hornets i've been attacked by insects and eight of them have bitten me and i'm going to die i need your help and not not a squeak from the house so i climb up the ladder and and there, in, in this little room, is an entire family looking absolutely terrified, with like, eyes like saucers, just like, what the hell? And, and, you know, and I realised there I was, sort of bare-chested, with hair sticking up on end, <laughs> and sweating and frothing and, uh, and... And so I said, no, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. I'm George, it's fine. <laughs> and, I, and I stepped forward, I bumped my head on the lintel and fell on top of the mother of the, this family. <laughs> And there was like, oh, so, so I stood up and said, Right, right, you've got, you've got to hear me. This is very important. I, I, was, I was walking through the forest. I got attacked by insects, eight of them bitten me, and now I'm going to die. And, and this young woman just starts going. Oh, 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 oh. And, and I, so I repeat it. And finally, this, this, the, 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 the father of the family goes, Ah, Saranga. And I say, Yes. Oh, shit instead of seranga, which means insects, i had been saying samanka, which is watermelons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, which wasn't a great start. No. And, so, um, and so he said, ah, right, you, you come through here and lie down, I've got just the thing. And I thought, ah, oh, there's going to be some amazing jungle medicine, you know, developed over... Millennia to, to cure hornet stings. So so I lie down and 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 he starts rubbing this stuff into my back and it feels great. It's all warming and relaxing and lovely. And it's like, oh, so, so nice. And then there's this familiar smell. And I turn around. And he's got this jar of Vicks Vapor rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, No, no, I'm gonna die. And so I run out the house. <laughs> forgetting that it's ten foot off the ground, <laughs> keep running like in a cartoon and hit the ground and I'm still running and I'm just oh, like this, and I'm running across the fields and I turn round and there he is with his jar of Vicks Vapour Rub in one hand and my shirt in the other hand going, Jesus, these English are crazy.
0: <laughs> but you survived.
2: I, I got back to, I, oh, yeah. I got another minibus back to the town. Um, as I arrived, I started having these poison convulsions but I've got Back to the hotel where my friend was staying, and just was sparked out for sixteen hours. But Boy, then, then I was all right.
0: So it wasn't. You weren't even doing any investigation or anything. You were just having you out having <laughs> a walk in the just, forest. Pure humiliation. It'd be a, ter- a, been like a terrible, a terrible way to die, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. would <be> just to lose <laughs> <Yeah, I know. laughs> the start of your career. <laughs> no one would have even known. No I mean, one, you've, no you've, you you've taken it. a lot of you took a lot of risks, generally speaking. And you've, there's been at other times you've practically been dead when, when you've been
2: i was technically dead i was pronounced yeah. clinically dead um in lodwar general hospital in turkana district in in kenya in the northwest of kenya um it, it was it was a misdiagnosis but right but the, um, uh, I'd, I'd contracted cerebral malaria and um and uh, it was this extraordinary thing i was i we were staying with um uh, living with this group of Turkana nomads in 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 northwestern Kenya, and and they said you've got to go and visit the fortune teller. And we said, oh, fortune teller? Pfft. All right then. Yeah, we we'll visit. Them. I mean, it'd be interesting. We we'll go and visit the yeah. fortune teller. And this guy lived in a hut all by himself outside the village, and he was a grumpy old bastard who just sat in this hut um, waiting for people to come to him. And um, and and he he looks up and he's like, oh, it's them. You know, <laughs> you, you can see. It's just like. Wait, wait a these two, these, these two white guys have just suddenly turned up at your hut. You're not remotely phased. Well, of course not, he's a fortune teller. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he... Um, so, and he says, um, he says, you've come to have your fortune told, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> how do you know? It's good. Yeah. So, um, so, he gets his cow hide out. And the idea is you throw down a couple of hide sandals and according to how they land, you can then tell something about about the, the person, you throwing it down on their behalf. And um, so, so my friend Adrian, the same um, poor sod I went with to <laughs> West Papua, he had his done first, and, the, and they both landed right way up in a particular configuration. The guy says, well, well, not much going on in your life then. <laughs> so what, apart from the fact that I'm in Turkana district? Well, yeah. So he does mine, and he says, oh, wow, you are seriously ill. And I said, "Oh, I'm fine, I'm totally fine." He said, "You, you, you, you are very close to death." And I said, "But I'm completely fine. There's nothing wrong with me." He said, "That's what you say." <laughs> and so I thought, well, "Okay, well, thanks. Great. Nice to meet you." So, and it happened that day. We had to go back to the regional capital, Lodwar, and Adrian had to go off down to Nairobi. Um, and I was just going to stay there for a few days doing a bit of, bit of research before we came back up and we went off to this cattle camp. And um, as soon as we got to Lodwell and Adrian had gone, I suddenly started feeling really weird. <laughs> and then everything was coming out at both ends and I collapsed. Uh, and then I tried crawling out into the street and I blacked out. And it happened that I blacked out literally across the road from Lodwa General Hospital, which was the only hospital for about 600 miles. <laughs> and, and I woke up two days later staring into this guy's face as his eyes were literally clouding over and he died right in front. It was The first thing I saw when I woke up was this guy dying in front because our beds had been pushed together because All there right. was so little room. And, and then the doctor comes around and says, oh, you're meant to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> So no no, I think that was him. No, 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 you're down on the list as dead. So yeah,
0: that was it. <laughs> Do you think the fortune teller gave you the disease somehow off the shoe? Maybe you had the you had the poison shoe. Yeah, he he has he has to make sure. He makes sure <laughs> yeah.
2: make sure it all comes right. It's not Big usual a for a fortune teller to go, Yeah, you're about to die. <laughs> That's not
0: good for business. No. Yeah, you're about to die, mate. Good though. Blimey. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, not for you so no. much. But that took a long time to... I mean, you've, you know, you've, that took a long time to get right from, though, obviously. that was... Yeah, no,
2: it really... It, it, it completely... Oh, this was cerebral malaria, so yeah. it really plays with your head. And so I went completely schizophrenic for about four or five days. I mean, hearing voices, seeing things. I, I, I experienced a full-on earthquake. Right. All the tiles sliding off the roof, people screaming, running around, dogs barking... I stumble outside, earthquake, earthquake. And there's a night watchman asleep on the stoop, <laughs> and the roof's made of corrugated iron. You know, right? so, ha, ha, what, what was going on? It was just, it was so strange. We were driving down the road, and stop. And there was this procession of elephants right by the bonnet. I said, God, that was close. And Adrian said, What was close? So, what do you mean, what's <laughs> close? Look, look, the elephants. There aren't any elephants. Wow. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I can see every hair. On, the, on, on their skin. It was amazing. Cool. Mm. Oh, I might get terrible. The fact that they were woolly mammoths might have, might have yeah, given should it have away. Been away. <laughs> yeah, have given
0: it away. Is it worth getting just for the hallucinations, or is it... No. And it's not taking drugs, <laughs> is it? So it's, it's legal. <laughs> but, yeah, you, but also, you've, you know, you've been at... You've, a, a, you've had your foot broken by security guards. Mm-hmm. Salisbury Hill, is
2: that? Yeah, so this was on a Rhodes protest in 1994... And a bunch. So, so the, the Tory government at the time had come up with this fantastic wheeze of connecting all the dots between scheduled ancient monuments and nature reserves and sites of special scientific interest across the whole country with motorways. <laughs> um, and they had this massive motorway building program. Thatcher had boasted that it was the um, be the biggest road building program since the Romans, and and nothing can stop the great great car economy. And we did. We stopped it. You know, right. but, but at a cost of, of quite a lot of, of, of blood and treasure. Yeah. And, and uh, we were just sort of routinely beaten up by these licensed thugs in yellow tabards, these, these security guards, un- inside of the police. The police would just stand there and watch as these guys just beat the crap out of us. And, and in this particular case, we'd been trying to do what we call digger diving, which was to climb onto bulldozers to stop them from working. And um, these two monstrous blokes grabbed hold of me I later found out that one of them had a GBH conviction. And so, oh, yeah, you, you'll be great for a security guard. So um, <laughs> they, they, they grabbed me, dragged me across um, the, the site where they were building the road. And there was this whole pile of fencing material which had these spikes on, on, on top of it, which they were about to erect. And they just threw me on top of this pile. And one spike just went and missed my neck by literally a couple of millimetres. Um, And I thought, blimey, that was close. And then I tried to (laughs) lever myself up, and it's like I was stuck. I was completely stuck. And then I noticed that there's this spike going through my boot and out the other side. I thought, oh, that's why I'm stuck. So I go... And it goes... And suddenly there's this fountain of blood coming out through the hole in the top of my boot. I thought, oh, that doesn't look very nice, I think. And so I tried to stand up, and I, I just... Fall, fall, fall flat on my face because the middle bone had been completely smashed.
0: Right.
2: Um, the X-ray was spectacular. There is shards of bone all, all over the foot. So, um, so they they said, and, and and you know, when the doctors saw it, they all oh, you know, you might never walk properly again. Um, they, they always say this just so you don't get disappointed, but. Um, <laughs> But they, they managed to stick it all together and um, and, and I, I got it all mended and, and and I was in this massive great cast and with crutches and I thought, right, you know, if I can never walk properly again, what 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 will I not be able to do? And so I made a sort of point of bouncing around on crutches to say, look, I can I can really you know, I'll be fine, I'll be fine because I can still move move a lot on crutches. So I went round to a friend's house and, and and I and they said, Oh God, how are you doing? Oh great, look, watch. And I go boing, boing across their floor. <laughs> Hit their rug, the rug just goes I go straight out through the French doors, <laughs> and they heard this fantastic crashing of flower pots <laughs> off stage. And they said, yeah, you're fine
0: <laughs> you 're sort of like the Mr. Bean of uh, <laughs> <laughs> investigative journalism, <That's> <laughs> but you get some reasons so you, you you were successful that was worth was it worth losing your the mobility of
2: your yeah. foot for a while for yeah like actually i mean it, it healed fine but um yeah i mean we, we won i mean we yeah. lost we lost some of the battles but we won the war we stopped that huge road building program from happening and so we have still got a few scheduled ancient monuments right. and nature yeah. reserves left in this country think
0: it's incredible i mean it's it is sort of incredible when you, when you find out the facts about this stuff i guess it's you know it's there's so much stuff going on in the world it's hard for people to cover everything but if they if it's in their interest not to cover they're not going to cover those stories. So it's, yeah. it's sort of... I found that you did a TED Talk and I think several things about rewilding and about uh, the wolves going back into the park. Is, was it... Uh, in,
2: into Yellowstone, Yellowstone, yeah, I nearly yeah.
0: really call it Jellystone Park. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to check that I didn't get the wrong one.
2: <laughs> That's where Yogi Bear came from.
0: Um, <laughs> so they introduced wolves back into the in Yellowstone Park and that kind of completely changed the yeah. whole environment in a way you wouldn't expect.
2: Yeah, So so when I studied zoology here when you could actually watch the saber-toothed tigers um they the the story we were told was basically that ecosystems are controlled from the bottom up that you have a particular soil type particular weather then you have particular kinds of plants and that um supports particular herbivores which supports particular carnivores but it turns out that we believe that that was universal because we have basically wiped all the big predators out almost everywhere but when you bring them back in some cases at least you see these extraordinary effects where the predators control the herbivores which control the vegetation which controls the soil type and the whole thing actually starts at the top of the food chain not at the bottom it's called a trophic cascade Mm. trophic to do with feeding cascade well you know what one of them is um and 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 this was one of the spectacular examples where according to to one paper the wolves had such a powerful impact when they were reintroduced to Yellowstone that they even changed the shape of the rivers. Because um, by driving the deer out of places where they could easily be trapped, like the river valleys, um, they enabled the trees to to, to grow back, which then stabilised the banks of the rivers, changed their meander pattern. And so the actual... Physical fabric of the land was yeah. changed by a couple of packs of wolves in this vast area.
0: It's I mean it's incredible. So what what's the the message from that? I mean it's basically that we. I mean wouldn't the world be better if the humans all do kill themselves and we are wiped out and then we ever can get back to?
2: Well, the we, we, we're doing our best. Yeah. <laughs> Problem Problems <is> we're <laughs> well, taking give quite <laughs> <didn't> we? Yes. <Yeah. laughs> I mean I mean the trouble. Well, not the trouble is, but you know we are a phenomenally resilient species. So yeah. it will basically be us, rats, cockroaches and tardigrades. That's about <laughs> it. Um, and what some of, some of us are trying to do is to say, maybe we could change course before we get to that point yeah. and maybe we could have humans and other wildlife as well. Wouldn't that be quite nice? Yeah. Um, though that seems uh, in most circles to be too much to ask for. It turns you into an enemy of society.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know, you know, I mean, I hope that the stuff you're doing (laughs) saves humanity and the world. But it's difficult to, you know, to know. It it feels like, is that part of the problem? It feels like it's so in progress and it's so going to be so hard to stop this runaway juggernaut that we're, we're not going to be able to do it.
2: Well, you know, everything we're fighting is things that we ourselves have created. I mean, there are so many better ways of running an economy, which are much more distributive, much more fair and don't actually trash. The entire basis of life on earth, which the economy is just a small part of. There are so many better ways of of running societies where everybody has much more of a say than we do at the moment. Um we, you know, we created the dysfunctional systems, we can create different systems. But that does mean confronting those who've been empowered by the dysfunctional systems, who are the billionaires and the People who work for those billionaires, basically, and that, that, those are the people whose power we have to overthrow.
0: But it's at the moment, again, as we record this, uh, we may be coming up to a general election probably quite soon, but you know, it is, in spite of everything that's happened the last 10 years in this country, in the United Kingdom, and everything that the Conservative Party have done, it seems to be that they're going to get, you know, and anything can happen, obviously, mm-hmm. and we know that, but it seems to be that they're going to get voted in again, in spite of all this, and obviously. I, mean, I think just in the first place, some kind of massive electoral reform is required in the UK to get us out of the mess we're in, but it doesn't seem like the public are voting for that.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole thing has been pitched as, 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 A, we're going to get sovereignty from Brexit, and B, that sovereignty is going to be popular sovereignty as opposed to parliamentary sovereignty, you know, because it's, it's all people versus parliament. That's mm. Boris Johnson's whole pitch. And yet we're not given any popular sovereignty at all except an election every four or five years and a referendum every few decades. Now, you know, that that is basically an 18th century style of, of government, where it's a purely representative system. In other words, entirely based on parliamentary sovereignty. And yet all the talk is of popular sovereignty, and we don't have any at all. And today we've got so many tools for running things better. Citizens' assemblies and and um and participatory budgeting and um and and these amazing digital means of changing the face of cities like in 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 Reykjavik where everybody decides the future of the city through you know through through this incredibly interesting new voting system that they've created using digital tools but our political system is still in the age of the quill pen it's extraordinary yeah, you know, It's all black rods and sergeants-at-arms. It's basically this sort of cod-medieval pantomime. Well, what we ought to have is a political system where we retain power between elections rather than just having a say once every four or five years.
0: Yeah, well... thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really does feel... I mean, we were talking backstage about the Oxford Union and the way those people have gone on to become the actual parliament... But it's all the sa- it's all the arguments the same the way it's put together it's same it feels so archaic um, just you know it, you watch it and you're embarrassed by I mean I just watch it as a comedian and be embarrassed by the the jokes that pass for jokes in Parliament for a start <laughs> I'd like to see Parliament wiped out just for that uh, but you know it just if it. it does something massive have to happen in order to change that or can we, can we change that in five years or ten years or are we looking 50 years down the line and too late?
2: Well, when, when you look at the incredible power of movements for democratic reform in the past where everybody said it's impossible, votes for women, you've got to be kidding. You know, I mean, it was, just, it was a far more preposterous proposition uh, as seen by people then, a lot of people, huge numbers of people, than having a, a participatory democracy is, is today. People say, oh, that might be interesting, there might be some drawbacks to it, but votes for women, no way! Yeah. Any, those women ever going to have, you might as, well, might as well give your pet rabbit a vote. You know, this, this was the level of the rhetoric, yeah. and yet it happened, and it happened incredibly fast once the suffragettes mobilised on a sufficient scale. Um, the same, same with civil rights, you know, the same with the end of the apartheid regime. The same with decolonization of India. It's all impossible until it happens.
0: Sure. And so, what can we do as citizens to help that occur if we wanted
2: well, to? Well, so, so this is a model that Extinction Rebellion has been trying to develop. How do we produce the most effective form of nonviolent civil disobedience? Because basically, there's been no genuine progress ever without nonviolent civil disobedience. That's how things change. And they haven't quite got there yet, but I'd say they're halfway there. You know they've I mean they 've managed to take a totally neglected but humongous issue and take it from the outer darkness into the center of political life, which is a start yeah but we you know we 've got to refine that model and and we 've got to be very clear about what we 're trying to achieve and how we 're trying to achieve it so for instance, if you look at the remain campaign at the moment it's, it's massive rallies, million people on the streets and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's really hard to see where that's going to go because just getting people on the street for one day doesn't actually seem to change anything at all. Think of the, the, the anti-Iraq war demo. I mean, that is not enough. That doesn't, doesn't do it. You, you've got to have a very clear strategic programme about the positive thing you're trying to achieve. I mean, the problem that Remain has got is just trying to reverse something. So it's, it's quite a negative campaign. You need to have a very clear positive propositional program here is the politics we would like to see and you can't base that around just one narrow thing about trying to create one trying to reverse something you don't like Mm. you've got to be far more radical than that if you're going to create some some sort of systemic change so the combination of having that clear program very clear demands recognizing that those demands aren't going to be given to you you basically got to force a political situation where the system changes, and having sustained and massive non-violent direct action, that's how stuff changes.
0: Yeah. And do you feel like, is Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister sort of the death throes of that old system? It just feels like he's the worst. I mean, obviously, Trump as well. It just feels like the worst people. Having known, I didn't know him personally, but I knew people like him. And you could tell from people who know him that he's, he's not interested in anything but himself. Maybe not even that. I mean, I don't even know what motivates it.
2: If you'd trawled the whole country looking for the worst possible person yeah. to be Prime Minister, I don't think you could have done better. I mean,
0: I think the double whammy of, of Johnson and, and Trump is pretty impressive. <laughs> if we could go back ten years and tell people that that was coming, we'd, we'd, I don't think we'd get many takers for it. But, uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, well, it's uh, good luck. Um, I'm doing podcasts so I can't really do much uh, to help you can't, I haven't even asked if he's tried to suck his own cock on that test, so I don't know if there's, know if there's time <laughs> the real important questions um, well it's, it's really fascinating it's definitely worth uh, looking up that TED talk and, uh, and obviously write for the Guardian and uh, cover a lot of these subjects on your uh, website so extinction rebellion probably, is there a website for that there's got no, to be
2: No there's an, there's yeah. a website for everything yeah. <laughs> so,
0: Um yeah. so uh, well if if that's interested you do uh, look up that it's it's may we probably got fifty or sixty years before we think about whether we have to get involved. <laughs> That's what I'm taking from the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Just relax a little bit first. Go and run in the jungle and get stung by some bees first. Um, no, look, it's been amazing to ha- to have this fantastic talk with you, and well, really it's great good, to have the chance
2: to cheer everyone
0: up. <laughs> 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 it's all right. Wait till next week's show. It's going to be really <laughs> depressing. Uh, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, the amazing George Mumbio. Thank you. you. See you next week. Come back next week. You have been listening to Rahulastava with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, George Mombio. Thank you very much to Pest. They play the music to this show, and it goes like this la 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 la. I would like to thank everyone at the Oxford Playhouse for having me back after all these years. I would like to thank um, Chris Evans, on that one, and all of his camera team who've helped us film these wonderful shows. You can see them on YouTube if you've enjoyed them hourly. Don't enjoy them orally, please. That is not the use of a podcast. Thanks to everyone who helps us make this show. Most thanks goes to you, the listener. Please tell your friends if you've enjoyed it. My producer was James Hingley. I'm indebted to my other producer and friend and long-time collaborator, Ben Walker. Uh, I'm also indebted to this week's executive producer, who was Ash Griffiths. Not a bad executive producer. I do know. Had some good notes. So thanks for getting involved. Uh, the check's in the post. This is a fuzz, gofasterstripe.com, Sky Potato Production. Um, why not go to gofasterstripe.com and you can buy DVDs, downloads and books and help us make more podcasts. And, of course, those... Uh, trump card game you can get there's all sorts of stuff there go and check it out you can get all three emergency questions books for just 20 pounds in a special deal it's wonderful there at gofasterstraight.com why not head there and see what all the fuss is about stop making lots of
2: fuss